The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Episode 59, The Mauryan Empire. Indian subcontinent. Last time we were in this part of the world was back in volume two when we were telling the story of the Indus Valley civilization, also called the Harappans, named after the settlement of Harappa. But the more well-known settlement was the astonishing archaeological location of Mohenjo-Daro. This is the oldest known civilization of the Indian subcontinent possibly settling sometime around 3000 BCE. The Indus Valley Civilization seemed to disappear during the second millennium BCE and it may have been the aridification of the lands around the Indus Valley that caused populations to die out or move on. We certainly see a decline in activity as we investigated this during episode 26 of volume 2. Then, in episode 28 of volume 2, we described how Indo-Iranian language speakers migrated into the lands of the Indian subcontinent from roughly the area of the modern country of Kazakhstan. The Indo-Iranians, also known as Aryans, diversified from other Indo-European language speakers and it would be the Indic language speakers who diversified from the Iranians before migrating eastwards towards the lands of the Indus Valley. They would settle the lands around the Ganges River around the turn of the first millennium BCE. Previous to their settlement, their lifestyles were somewhat typical of the nomadic pastoralists from the north such as the Scythians. As they settled the lands around the Ganges River, they would begin a much more sedentary and agricultural existence. These people would have spoken an early form of Sanskrit that would have been the language spoken when the Vedas were written. So it was referred to as Vedic Sanskrit for that reason. It could be described as a cousin of the Avestan language of the earliest Iranians which was used when writing the Avesta. The Avesta are the religious texts of Zoroastrianism while the Vedas are the oldest scriptures of Indian religion. New cities started to emerge about halfway through the first millennium BCE and they were the first known cities after the Indus Valley Civilization. Despite there being a comparative dark age with a lack of information and activity after the Indus Valley Civilization disappeared, there are connections with Iron Age Indian artefacts that have similarities to the Indus Valley Civilization, particularly in relation to the burnished pottery created by the new cultures of the later Vedic period after 1000 BCE, a time when we can suggest that Indian cultures entered the Iron Age. Settlements emerged from an area in the lands of the Upper Indus River, and then right the way along a parallel line south of the Himalayas 
where the Ganges River heads eastwards towards the Ganges Delta, where the water empties out into the Bay of Bengal to the east of the subcontinent. The Indus empties out to the west of the subcontinent in contrast. The settlements grew until they would become influential over their surrounding areas in the same way that city-states or polis would form. There would be a point where around 16 recognisable kingdoms could be identified, although they were not all strictly monarchical. These 16 entities were called the Mahajanapadas, and their period was from around 600 BCE. So to summarise the millennium following the collapse of the Indus Valley civilization by around 1600 BCE, the first new realms to emerge, which we can refer to as Janapadas, were around the lands of the Upper Indus and marked the beginning of the early Vedic period. This is when the Sanskrit language flourished and the Vedic religious scriptures started to be written. One of the earliest known Janapadas was in the region known as Gandhara. After the early Vedic period was the late Vedic period, marking India's transition into the Iron Age. By this time, Janapadas had been established right the way along the Ganges to its delta in the east, so we can recognise a long line of connected realms. By 600 BCE, the time of the transition from the late Vedic period to the Mahajanapada period, we can recognise more Janapadas stretching back westwards across the subcontinent, along the line of the Narmada River. This is called the second urbanisation of India and is a time when the Shramana movement created the beginnings of what would make Hinduism and Buddhism distinct from each other. The dominant Janapadas are referred to historically as the Mahajanapadas, literally the Great Janapadas. The most notable of all the Mahajanapadas was Magadha. Magadha was initially centred around the city of Rajagriha, which is the modern city of Rajgir, in the south of the Indian state of Bihar. The beginnings of the growth of the Magadha coincided with the eastward expansion of the Achaemenid Persian Empire under the rule of their king, Cyrus the Great, whose extent would reach the western banks of the Indus River by the time of the rule of Darius the Great. This was still no closer than around 800 miles from the heartland of the Magadha Kingdom though. It is difficult to pinpoint exact dates for rulers during this period due to the differing information from various scripts and the fact that the dates have to be retrospectively worked out by counting backwards from a more modern date and looking for corresponding events that offer clues. We do believe that we can identify three sequential dynasties which began with the Haryanka dynasty during the 6th century BCE. Magadha would increase its influence during the Haryanka dynasty which lasted until the late 5th century BCE. Other Mahajanapadas would have also been looking to extend their influence during this period as agricultural wealth led to military improvements and bureaucracy which was quite an organic path of modernisation for most ancient world cultures. The Haryanka dynasty of Magadha would make way for the Shishanaga dynasty and by the time of the end of the Shishanaga dynasty 
around the middle of the 4th century BCE, the Magadha had extended its influence over most of the Mahajanapadas. Now it was the most important state of the Indian subcontinent. The final years of the Shishunaga dynasty leave it particularly difficult for us to find a clear king list and this is because it appears to have entered a chaotic time with many usurpations and a lot of rival claimants. The Nanda dynasty One of the most definitive characters of this period was a man called Mahapadmananda. We know that Mahapadmananda was the son of a Shishinaga king and a Shudra woman. Let's unpack that. We know that the Shishinaga dynasty ruled the Magadha Mahajanapada during the 4th century BCE. The fact that we know that Mahapadmananda's mother was a Shudra woman tells us that a caste system was a recognisable aspect of Indian society as far back as this period at least. The caste system is something closely associated with the Hindu societies of India and Nepal. It is believed to have emerged around 1000 BCE as attested by ancient scriptures and in essence it clarifies the stratification of society which is something that we know to be a natural progression of sedentary societies. We saw the earliest urban societies of Mesopotamia become stratified at a much earlier time in history so that people who lived in settlements knew what their role was within their community. What made the caste system special is the fact that it was very much defined for each individual where they slotted into the system. For example, at the top of the caste system were the Brahmins, who were the religious priests and academics of society. Next would be the Kshatriyas, who were the kings and military leaders of their societies. After that, you would find the Vaishyas, who were the agricultural farmers and the merchants. The next class would be the Shudras, who were the working class of society. There would also be a type of slave class commissioned to do all the less desirable jobs of cleaning toilets, and they were called the Dalits. Often we can see the Indian caste system as something that was strictly adhered to in the past, so different castes might not have access to the same resources, and intermarriage between two castes may not be permitted. The younger generations who live in the biggest urban centres in India don't tend to take the rules of the caste system as serious as the older generations, with the concept seemingly somewhat antiquated in the modern world. However, there is more to the caste system history than initially meets the eye, as we have mentioned that the Shishinaga king Mahanandin fathered Mahapadmananda by a Shudra woman. And although this may not seem permissible by the caste system, Mahapadmananda still ultimately became the ruler of the Magadha. Under the Nanda dynasty, the kingdom of Magadha extended its influence to the point where it could be classed as an empire. Some will claim that the strictest period of caste suppression was actually a modern thing which took place under the company rule of India and the subsequent British Raj of the 18th and 19th century. That will be a story for volume 6. 
By the time of the collapse of the Achaemenid Persian Empire and its subsequent submission to the Macedonians led by Alexander the Great, the influence of the Magadha Kingdom under the Nanda dynasty had stretched across near enough all of the Mahajanapadas along the Ganges and Narmada rivers. Chandragupta Maurya Alexander the Great had reached the lands of the Upper Indus River in around 326 BCE and he may have come into direct conflict with the Magadha kingdom had his own troops not refused to continue Alexander's insatiable and relentless eastward march. The 1st to 2nd century Greek historian Plutarch reports that Alexander met a man called Sandrakotos while in the western Indian subcontinental city of Taxila, before Alexander's troops forced him to return west to Babylon. We spoke about this back in episode 18. The local man called Sandrakotos is believed to be known to Indian history as Chandragupta. Chandragupta is reported to have left the lands of the Indus accompanied by his personal mentor called Chanakya and headed eastwards into the heartlands of the Magadha kingdom which was being ruled from the glorious new capital city of Pataliputra under the king Dhananda who may have been a son of Mahapadmananda. We can't be totally sure why Chandragupta went east but it could have been at the will of Chanakya. Chandragupta may have even become a military commander under Dhananda but it does seem that the relationship between Chandragupta and King Dhananda broke down at some point possibly even leading to Dhananda ordering Chandragupta's execution. The details of what happened next are very sketchy but we can tell a hazy story of how Chandragupta may have returned to Taxila to start amassing an army to head back to Pataliputra to challenge King Dhananda. And this might have been made easier by the fact that Dhananda was not a popular ruler. The story ends with Chandragupta successfully taking the city, possibly after besieging it, sending any remaining Nanda into exile. The man called Chandragupta Maurya had now taken control of the Magadha kingdom and all the lands brought under its influence by the Nanda dynasty to become the first ruler of a new Mauryan empire. After his success, Chandragupta would embark on a program of consuming all of the societies of the Ganges right the way back to the city of Taxila and all the lands of the Indus Valley. Also, the lands along the Narmada River and those societies we know to have been established during the years of the Mahajanapadas. The Mauryan Empire would quickly become the largest empire that the Indian subcontinent had ever seen. When Alexander the Great died, all of his conquered lands would be split among the Diadochi, who were mainly the chief military commanders who served Alexander. The easternmost lands of the Macedonian Empire would fall under the command of Seleucus Nicator, who would create the Seleucid Empire. Seleucus would head east to claim those lands of the Indus Valley won by Alexander 
and now occupied by Chandragupta, and this would lead to the Seleucid-Mauryan War which began in 305 BCE. The arrival of the Seleucids would represent the first fully-fledged foreign invasion of Mauryan territory and therefore the first major military test for Chandragupta and Chanakya. Seleucus believed that he was entitled to these lands centred somewhat around the geographical region of the Punjab, which is roughly the lands between the Upper Indus and Sutlej rivers. The result of the war and the subsequent treaty can be a testament to the diplomatic skills and the good governance of Chandragupta and Chanakya. Seleucus would not achieve victory over the Mauryans and had to come to terms with Chandragupta. Seleucus would give up his claims on the Indus satrapies and agreed to a royal marriage alliance between the two empires. Chandragupta would then gift Seleucus with 500 war elephants which Seleucus gratefully took back to the west, where he may have even utilised them at the Battle of Ipsus, which was a major military conflict between the Diadochi, who were the successors to Alexander the Great and inheritors of his vast empire. We mentioned this battle in episode 21. In later life, Chandragupta would turn to religion and would follow the teaching of the Jainist monk called Badrabahu, Jainism was a religion which branched off from Vedic traditions and more closely related to Buddhism than Hinduism, something we'll explore more closely in a later episode. Jainists believe in the sanctity of all life on earth and so Chandragupta's abdication of his imperial throne is seen as a religious cleansing of himself, surrendering all of his material gains to his son Bindasara. Chandragupta would retire to the lands of southern India where he would perform the Jainist ritual called Salekhana. This is the act of fasting from all forms of food and drink so that one can die and be reborn in the purest form possible. And so Chandragupta performed Salekhana and indeed passed away. Bindusara seemed to continue the good work of his father by consolidating the territory of the Mauryan Empire. He would reign for over 20 years and by the end of his reign, the empire would stretch from the lands of the Indus Valley right the way across the subcontinent to the Ganges Delta. Then the imperial lands would stretch southwards across the Deccan Plateau as far as the southern tip of the peninsula and excluding a large area of land to the east around the region of Kalinga, on the east coast of the peninsula. Ashoka When Bindusara died in around 273 BCE, a succession crisis took place before one of his sons, called Ashoka, managed to win control of the empire. Much of the Indian subcontinent had been subdued or subjugated into the great Mauryan Empire, which was becoming a place of academia with advances in science and art and something that would be further advanced by the future societies of India, such as the Gupta Empire. There was a definite fusion of cultures that stretched right the way across Europe and Asia, creating a connection of ideas, academia and trade that would touch all cultures 
We hear of nomadic Scythians becoming scholars in Greek lands during this period, but we also see Greek translations of Indian documents actually within India itself from the reign of Ashoka, which validates a diversity of ethnicity which included Greek speakers migrating since the conquests of Alexander the Great in the previous century and further touched by the neighbouring success of the Seleucid Empire and the formation of a Greco-Bactrian kingdom in the northwest. Generally speaking, Indian culture was advancing at a rapid rate under the rule of the Mauryans. If Ashoka had to battle with his brothers to claim his father's throne, and if it led to a civil war within the Mauryan Empire, then this would not have had the same profound effect on Ashoka as the Kalinga Wars. If you recall, we stated that the Mauryan Empire by this stage pretty much ruled the entire Indian subcontinent east of the Indus and south of the Ganges, apart from the very southern tip of the Indian Peninsula and an area on the east coast of the peninsula surrounding the region of Kalinga, which is a similar area to the modern Indian state of Odisha. We're going to explore the story and legacy of Ashoka the Great in greater detail next week. Ashoka is a fascinating character who deserves further discussion, and so we'll see what impact he had on religion, what impact warfare had on him, and whether any of it was even true. What we can be sure of is that he is a highly respected representative of Buddhism. And the reason for this is often directed back to the experiences that Ashoka had while conquering the Kalinga region. The Kalinga region was known for being prosperous, but it is not thought to have been ruled by a single monarch. It would be very much in the interest of the Mauryans to include this region to their empire, which is likely to have been the fundamental motivation for the war. The coastal regions are thought to have been rich in trade. Ashoka is reported to have put Kalinga firmly to the sword in his attempt to subjugate it, and the outcome suggests that anything less than victory was never going to be good enough. Kalinga fell to the Mauryans, and the bloodshed was considerable. It is stated that maybe as many as 150,000 Kalinga people died and the sheer deadliness had a lasting effect on Ashoka. Ashoka would never engage in any kind of military expansion ever again, seemingly feeling remorse for the mass loss of life during the Kalinga War. Ashoka would observe a rule of non-violence after this war, which was an observance in line with Buddhist practice. This kind of religious observance was similar to the changing nature of Ashoka's grandfather, Chandragupta Maurya, but Chandragupta observed Jainist practices as opposed to the Buddhist practices that Ashoka followed. Having said that, the specific principle of non-violence called Ahimsa is a recognisable virtue of Jainism as well as Buddhism and is also a recognisable Hindu virtue. We will explore the Indian religions more closely in a dedicated episode. 
The remainder of Ashoka's reign was totally unlike the period previous. Despite Ashoka's change of attitude, the Mauryan Empire was reported in some circles to be in a golden age with great advances in art and science and building and architecture. I have to be quick to add that there are also those who suggest that these advances were more significant after the decline of the Mauryans. Mauryan territory would encompass most of modern India, Pakistan and Nepal as well as a significant portion of Afghanistan. Ashoka would celebrate his huge empire by erecting pillars far and wide inscribed with edicts advising his subjects on the right way to live their lives according to the concept of Dharma, which is effectively a code of conduct which is recognised in all major Indian religions. The pillars would be centred around the heartlands of the empire in relatively close proximity to the Ganges River and Ashoka would opt for smaller stone slab inscriptions for the far reaches of the empire. He would send missionaries to other lands such as Sri Lanka to spread the word of Buddhism and showed no interest in any kind of military conquest, preferring psychological conquest. Ashoka died in 232 BCE in the great capital city of the Mauryan Empire, Pataliputra, which has now been supplanted by the newer city of Patna. We have to be careful to note that the majority religion of the Mauryan Empire was still likely to have been Brahmanism, which was another Vedic religion considered to be the precursor of Hinduism. It may even be the case that the major Buddhist schism can find its origin here with the divergence of the Mahayana and Vajrayana traditions, but it's hard to say this with any forceful conviction. The death of Ashoka was more of a political issue for the Mauryan Empire though. We certainly know that the Satavahana kingdom emerged sometime perhaps after the death of Ashoka in lands to the south of Kalinga, possibly under Mauryan rule. We can't be certain because so little has been recorded about this period that we have to take wild guesses about what really happened. There are a lot of possibilities and probabilities. Even if the Satavahana kingdom didn't really begin to exist as a recognisable kingdom until a long time after Ashoka's death, we can still be somewhat confident that the lands that the Satavahana emerged in drifted away from Mauryan influence at the very least. Those scripts that we do have to refer to are often viewed with much trepidation of fallacy or propaganda by historians and we are advised to view them with caution. We can make some loose suggestions that are unlikely to be a long way from the truth but if they are then we really don't have an alternative story so we may as well go with them anyway. The Mauryan king list gives us our first three definitive kings in Chandragupta, Bindasara and Ashoka but after that there are a series of shorter reigns and let's not forget the suspicions of a succession crisis before Ashoka did emerge as the third known Mauryan emperor. The last known Mauryan emperor was Brihadratha Maurya and he may have ruled during the 180s BCE. 
His Mauryan Empire is believed to have been considerably smaller than that of Ashoka some 50 years previous. By this time the Seleucid Empire had also shrunk and so the easternmost territories that bordered the Mauryan Empire had been abandoned and it would be the Greco-Bactrian king Demetrius who would take advantage of the void that the Seleucids and the Mauryans had been too weak to dominate. Demetrius the Invincible, king of the Greco-Bactrians and the Indo-Greeks, was pressurising the western lands of the Mauryans until a great regicide would take place all the way east in Pataliputra. One of the Mauryan military generals of the 180s BCE was a man called Pushamitra Shunga. And it may have been that Pushamitra Shunga was concerned over the weakness of the empire under pressure from Demetrius the Invincible from the West and he might have attributed it to the comparatively placid presence of Buddhism in the realm. Pushamitra was very much a Brahmanist who didn't believe in the success of non-military aggression and the lack of a caste system. He believed that the Mauryan dynasty was failing and it was time for a change. So during a military inspection Pushamitra Shunga assassinated Brihadratha Maurya and took control of the remains of the Mauryan Empire. Fortunately for Pushamitra Shunga, Demetrius the Invincible had died in the same year, which appears to have fragmented the Greco-Bactrians and their close cousins, the Indo-Greeks. During the course of the 2nd century BCE, Scythian migration southwards from the Eurasian steppe added to the diverse mixture of cultures in that area. Although the Shunga Empire was much smaller than the preceding Mauryan Empire, it would still survive this period and dominate East India. The mix of cultures in the western subcontinent around the Indus Valley would later be influenced by the expansion of the Great Parthian Empire during the course of the 1st century BCE and it appears that all of the kingdoms of the Indus and the Ganges became very fragmented with no real dominant power as they had been during the Mauryan period and that would remain the case until a new wave of migration from the Eurasian steppe occurred in the 1st century BCE. And that's a good time now to pause our story until next time. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. We've gone back to India for the first time in a long time since we talked about the Indus Valley civilization and the settlement at Mahenjadaro. And uh, what a completely different story we're telling this week. So much more um, mythology um, and so much more in terms of religion and uh, development of civilization. And I'm looking forward to next week when we we talk more in detail about Ashoka the Great because I think the story of Ashoka the Great teaches us so much about what it is to be a responsible historian, um, how uh, anyone who studies history should look at information um, and it really sort of teaches the art of... Uh, knowledge, understanding and a little bit of intuition to arrive 
at the truth. And uh, sometimes that's all we get. We get fragments of information and the greatest historian minds will put together a story and if their peers accept it, then we tend to tell that story. And uh, But in that circumstance, obviously, if you don't agree with it and you can uh, give a reasonable explanation as to why you don't agree with it, then you end up with a fascinating discussion about history. So I'm looking forward to next week. It should be quite um, it should be quite good on a number of levels. I'm just going to throw it out there as well. And um, obviously, um, I'm not from India, and uh, my pronunciation of uh, Hindu or I should say Hindi or Sanskrit words. Um, may not be very good and so I apologise for that. I I have endeavoured to listen to native speakers where possible and uh, and and try and mimic them. So uh, hopefully I didn't make a complete car crash of it but um nonetheless I, I think I feel I should just put it out there that I'm certainly no direct expert on on Indian history and certainly on speaking Indian language. Now, I receive a lot of kind messages every week, messages of support for the podcast, and um, people do also make uh, contributions towards the upkeep of the podcast, and I can't tell you how grateful I am for all of your generosity. So many people want to support this podcast, and, and I think there's a you know there's many of you that have a great desire to see this um, project uh, go right through to the end and so that you can enjoy the benefit of having a, a consistent uh, platform by which to base your knowledge of the history of the world on so um, I really appreciate everything that all of you do and um, when you do make a contribution to uh, the history of the world podcast you automatically become a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and we can welcome this week Mark Painter, James Jeffries and Danielle Allen um, and that they're all now members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati who um, have very kindly um, and charitably um, voluntarily given up uh, a little portion of their money uh, to keep the podcast going. I can't tell you how grateful I am as I am to all members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. You're all stars. You all really help to keep this project going and um, and and yes, you, you may never realise the difference that you're making, so thank you. Now, part of my penance for uh, taking all of your lovely money and uh, trying to make the podcast better as a consequence is um, to read out the messages that some of you kindly send in to me. And um, I, I love receiving your messages and it's a, it's a joy to read them out. Um, I will say, though, that, um, uh, you know, I do get sent links to articles sometimes and um, it can, like, I'm, to be honest with you, um, I personally think it's better to post those things on the public forums like Facebook, Twitter, etc. Um, even the um, the discussion forum. Because 
posting it to me is great and um and it's nice to receive it but i am just but one person and uh if your goal is to actually uh, spread the knowledge and um the information and and to give as many people as possible the pleasure of being able to read it and um and digest it then you should be posting it on the public forums don't email it to me post it on the public forum so that we can all enjoy it together right let me see if i can rattle through these messages then the emails that have been sent to me this week uh, the first one's from keith who puts hey chris been loving the podcast as a 30 year old it's a great refresher on top of the new cultures i never covered i, I just finished the Volume 2, Episode 33, Archaic Americas, and hearing you speak on the US dismissing its history is truly a frustrating thing. He then writes, I am from Buffalo, New York, opposite side of the state on Lake Erie, south of Niagara Falls, and even as a kid in school, was aware of the whitewashing in our textbooks, but in the 90s they at least taught us some things about horrible things uh, but since the Bush administration after 9-11, they passed the No Child Left Behind Act that pretty much made it so a student couldn't fail a class and the textbooks just got worse. I have siblings that are up to 15 years younger than me and was enraged uh, by the direction everything's been turning. Sorry to vent, but just hearing you so blatantly say you'd debate anyone who would dispute the country's history was a breath of fresh air. Um, well, yeah, it's a difficult subject, I suppose. I mean, t for me, I see the USA is a incredible human project um, right from its very beginning. It's very unique. It is, it's still to this day, it's an incredibly unique country founded on some very, um, very sort of unique principles. And... It's fascinating for me to read more about the um, the political history of the United States of America. So I'd I'd always quite happily go toe to toe with anyone who dismisses U.S. history. But I think um, my initial comments in that other podcast episode wasn't really about Americans dismissing American history. It was really more about um, what I witness, uh, which is not much to be fair. But in Britain, I have seen. Um, this trendy um, fad um, some years ago for saying, oh, Americans are jealous of British history. Well, I, I can't, un you know, I can't understand why anyone would suggest that, to be honest with you. I think Americans should be very proud of their history and proud of how their country has become what it is today. Um, so that's my feelings about it. But interesting discussion, always interesting discussion when we're talking about the political history of the United States. Um, Alexander Jankowski has put, the writer from PA, um, this is referring to a, an email sent in that I read out on a previous episode. The writer from PA asked what you knew about Attila's grave and buried treasure. We're talking about Attila the Hun. You knew nothing about it. I'm not surprised. I think the gentleman confused Attila's burial with that of Genghis Khan. The Khan's body, along with numerous grave goods, 
was given to a number of workers. They were told to find a far out of the way place, bury everything and erase all tracks of what they had done. Once this was finished, the soldiers sent to protect the workers and the treasure and the body killed every one of the workers before heading home. And as they came home within sight of the capital, another military force rode out and killed all the Guardian soldiers. I'm so very glad I came across your podcast. I'm amazed that someone would even consider doing this, much less show every sign of carrying the project through to the end. My hat hiding my receding hairline is off to you, sir. <laughs> Thank you, Alexander. A very well written email there. Um, and yes, you're probably right. It, it might have been um, a confusion. I, I, I think that can be an easy confusion to make between Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan because they... They have uh, very similar natures and, and they're from very similar origin, aren't they? So um, it can be a distinction that that can be confused at times, but uh, hopefully we'll set the record straight throughout the course of this podcast. But thank you so much for the message, Alexander. Uh, Nina Ellis has written in saying, Hello, my partner and I are driving through Pakistan to Harappa and very much enjoying your podcast. It's really difficult to find good podcasts about Pakistan and this area, and we really appreciate yours. Keep up the amazing work. Can't wait to listen to more. All the best, Nina. Um, yeah, well, well, we'll undoubtedly speak a lot more about Pakistan because Pakistan does have one of the more interesting histories out of most of the countries in the world. I know it's it's difficult to be dismissive. I like to try and say positive things about every country, but I do think Pakistan has that fusion of cultures that, that touches it from sort of all, all angles, really. Like, so you, you get the, the Muslim influence from its west um, with the Arabic script, and then you get, obviously, the, the Indian influence from the east and the, and the colonialised influence of, of the British. And, and it all adds to this rich fusion of, of Pakistani culture, which I think... Um, we will endeavor, we'll, we'll inevitably um, be talking about in much more detail as the podcast goes on, not least of all when we're discussing Indus Valley um, history. So um, thank you, and, and I'm glad that you, you approve of, of the work. Uh, Ken uh, Vland, or Wieland, um, I apologise uh, if I've got your name wrong, but I very much enjoy your podcast, but I absolutely hate the bell or horn sound you use. Why? I like to listen when I go to bed, and as much as I enjoy the content, the horn or bell sound you use wakes me up and causes no end of grief. Well, Ken, let's um let's have a let's have a closer uh, thought about what you've you've put there. So the let's. Uh, I I can only imagine you you must be talking about the the sort of the chapter breaks where the voice of God cuts in and tells you what's happening next. So uh, we tend to have a little um, a, a little jingle, um, a little musical jingle to introduce that, and I, and I I do alter it from time to time. Um, so. I've got a feeling I know which one is is upsetting you, Ken. 
Let me take to, uh, let me take you back to volume two briefly. So let's try to work out what happened. Before the Shang Dynasty. It's that one, isn't it, Ken? It's that Chinese symbol, isn't it? I've got to admit that I I do slightly regret using that one actually because um, it is a it is a bit sudden, isn't it? It's a bit sudden. It's a bit loud. Um, so I think um, if and when time comes where the the second volume has to be re-recorded, I think we might see uh, we might see the removal of that particular sound effect. So uh, yeah, I'm feeling your pain, Ken, and I'm not really um, I really feel sorry that I've caused you so much stress just with that small sound effect that really wasn't um the plan that wasn't wasn't part of the plan at all now if you're enjoying the podcast and you you'd like to write in yourself then please do please do and uh, please share your links on the social media platforms so that we can all enjoy them and um don't forget to rate and review the podcast because when you write a review especially on uh, apple podcasts I like to read them out for everyone to to listen to, so they're sort of part of the program normally. But I'm going to wrap up for this week now and uh, and scoot off for yet another week. Um, be aware that we may be seeing the emergence of new videos um, associated with the History of the World podcast, uh, created by none other than Nick Barksdale of the study uh, the study of antiquity in the middle ages youtube channel which has almost got 100,000 subscribers can you believe that that's astronomical amount of subscri- subscribers so um so maybe maybe when he publishes the new uh the new history of the world podcast it might attract some new listeners who knows uh, but anyway, uh, that's all for this week. Next week, we carry on in India. We're talking about Ashoka the Great and finding out what really did happen and how we know that it happened, um, if indeed it did. So that's to look forward to for next week. Thank you once again for listening. And don't forget, until we meet again this time next week, uh, behave yourself, be good. Come to the History of the World Podcast.com and join all the other hot welders on our wide range of social media. Why not support the podcast by clicking the Patreon link or buying me a book and becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati? Drop me a line at History of the World Podcast at mail.com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode. See you next time.